One of the enduring features of our lives is the stories we tell about ourselves. We try to impose order on chance or chaos. We try to find deep meaning in events large and small. And most unfailingly, sometimes endearingly, sometimes not, we seek ways to explain, to justify, occasionally to disguise with good intentions and motives, all we have done and all we will do. Part of how we do that, where we get our ideas, templates, structures which we can then impose on our lives, is by imagining ourselves, our roles, in the stories of others. From idle daydreaming through to full Walter Mitty, we become the hero of another's story so that we might become the hero of our own. That's as true with Bible stories as with any other. If you're like me, you're more likely to see yourself as David than Goliath, Moses than Pharaoh, or for that matter, Abel than Cain. And the same is true in the Gospels. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, I prefer to see myself as the Samaritan rather than the priest or the lawyer, despite being both. I'd like to think in the parable of the prodigal son that I wouldn't have been the jealous, angry elder brother, but the generous father. Not the wayward prodigal son either, of course. And I might tell myself that if I'd been Peter, I wouldn't have denied Jesus. But what of this story, the story of the Canaanite woman? Well, let me suggest three possible ways of seeing ourselves in this. The first is as a disciple, although, of course, reimagined for our own purposes. Here is Jesus in unfriendly territory, and a local woman comes to him and asks for help. He's never met her. To start off with, we're horrified. She is way out of order to approach him as a man, as a Jew, as a teacher. We try to shoo her away. And yet approach him she does. She is respectful but firm. She's tenacious but not whiny. And she has faith. She's like the substitute brought onto the field in the last minute of the game, who unbelievably catches the ball deep in her territory and then runs it 90 yards up the field to score. After our initial skepticism, we disciples, we're on our feet, we're pumping the air, we're yelling for her, willing for her to succeed. And she does, she does it. Faith moved mountains. She may not have been on the original team, but by God, she deserved her place. How about a second way of seeing ourselves in this? Well, perhaps this time with Jesus, although we have, do have to make a couple of leaps to get there. But if we can do that, then we end in the same place as the disciples, amazed at her faith. Anyway, starting at the beginning, he's come here for a rest, away from the people he's been sent to minister to, and in breaks his Gentile woman. So first, he simply doesn't answer. He ignores her, not his job. We sort of sympathize. We're all busy, we all have a plan we need to execute on, and we can't afford diversions and digressions. Of course, in the middle of the story, well, we can't quite see ourselves there, can we? Because he calls her a dog. In an age when, at last, we recognize the scandal of powerful men diminishing powerless women, not to mention the inflammatory issues of racial or tribal exclusivity, this just doesn't look good. So anyway, we skip over that and go right to the end. There, it's faith recognized, daughter cured, woman happy, like we'd have done, except we wouldn't have been rude, and, of course, we wouldn't have treated her as anything but equal. 
to comfortably fit in. To allow us to make this our narrative, both of these require some massaging of the story. But there's a third way of seeing ourselves in this, because there's a third character, the Canaanite woman herself. This is less intuitive, as we might prefer to see ourselves as a better version of the disciples recognizing her faith, or as a better version of Jesus rewarding that faith, but without being nasty like he was. Nevertheless, we need to look seriously at the Canaanite woman, because despite our desire to be at the center of every story, we may in fact be the outsider rather than the insider, and we may learn more about our own story from hers than from either of the other two. Because, to put it plainly, we're Gentiles. We're sinners. Often we're beset by demons. So let me try to explain how we could inhabit this third story by way of telling you about me and my other job. As many of you know, I'm a tax lawyer. It may not intuitively strike you as being quite as worthy an occupation as being a nurse or a doctor or a teacher, but over the years, I've built up a pretty decent story, convincing to me at least, as to why I can do good in my role. And yes, how I can square it with being a priest. But at times, that's not the way everyone sees it. And a story gets written or a blog gets published that doesn't quite fit the story I like to tell about myself. And when that happens, my carefully constructed self-narrative takes a bit of a hit. So what's the connection with the Canaanite woman you're thinking? Well, here's how I see it. The picture, the story, the narrative that I build up of my own life, well, often it's just that, a story. A story with me at the center, a story that revolves around me, where I'm the prime mover, the hero, the controller of the narrative. I can remove, excise everything that doesn't fit, that's anomalous, embarrassing, contrary to that narrative flow. But there's a real cost to that. Perhaps not in the middle of the day, but certainly in the middle of the night, I know my weaknesses, my faults, my sins. And bury them as I might under layers and layers of carefully constructed narrative. I know. I know what's buried. And the effort, sometimes the contortions that it takes to make sure that it stays that way. But here's the good news in today's gospel, and it is truly good news. The Canaanite woman knew more than not just the disciples did, but more than Jesus did too. She understood that the man who just fed 5,000 Jews from a couple of loaves and fishes with baskets left over had more to spare than scraps. And she understood Whatever the world thought of her, however low her status, however unworthy she might know herself to be, that God had sent Jesus to feed the whole world. The problem comes if I read myself into the disciples or into Jesus' shoes, if I picture myself as the good guy, trying to carefully manage the disbursement of salvation, but in a kinder and gentler way than they did. Liberation only comes if I follow the Canaanite woman, if I abandon my pretensions to be at the center of the story. I shouldn't be seeking to disperse or manage God's salvation. Rather, as a flawed human being, I should be insistently trying to claim it.
So to join the Canaanite woman in her story, I need to do two things. First, I need to drop the fiction and truly understand my need for help. And second, I need to act on that understanding by asking, imploring, beseeching God for that help. Not out of my own goodness or my own deserving, but out of my need and my weakness. Both are contrary, of course, to a story that places me at the center. But the real story is not one with me as the good guy and God and Jesus in supporting roles. The real story is God's story, in which God invites me, flawed as I am, to play a part. And it's a story for everyone, not just for a special members club, not just for a racial group, not just for particularly worthy people, but for everyone, even me. If I can inhabit the Canaanite woman's story, then I can have hope. Not hope that people will write nice stories about me, but rather hope that comes from accepting that my real story is confusion and conflict and almost constant ambiguity. And that, despite all that, along with a Canaanite woman, I can, I must, as insistently as she did, still seek God's abundance. So here's how that story ends. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. But if I only ask, then God will give it to me as pure gift. Amen.